prison, that I may give thanks to your name. So we're in Genesis and we come to chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, maybe you can flick Genesis 9. We'll be reading verse 18 to 29. Um, just a little word as I come into it. I thought I'd got through the tricky parts. And that's the point when, when you prepare. You know, I came to that bit in Genesis 6. You know Genesis 6 about the angels and the, the daughters of men. And I made the cardinal mistake of not, of not reading ahead quickly enough because I came to a rather tricky bit today as well. So you can pray for me as, as we read God's word together. But let's pray as we come to God's word. O Lord God, whom have we in heaven but you? And there is nothing and no one on earth that we desire besides you. Our flesh and our hearts may fail, but God, you are our strength and our portion forever. So we pray, O Lord, you would convict, correct, comfort, forgive, speak, teach, draw near to us now as we draw near to you. In the strong, beautiful, lovely name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Genesis 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah, who went forth from the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, and become, became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servants. May God enlarge Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. What are we to do with this strange, somewhat disturbing, PG-15 story right here in the middle of the Bible? It seems, on the face of it, we could do without this story. I'm talking humanly, because if you look at verses 18 and 19, we're just talking about Noah's sons. So why not jump ahead to chapter 10 and just start, and these are the generations of the sons of Noah, and just dig into their genealogy. Because after all, we've really grown to love genealogies, haven't we, in recent days? I'm a big fan of them, and I'm sure you are too, I trust so why do we need verses 20 through 27? What is this doing here? Well, for starters, we should always remember that obviously that every word is inspired, so the story is clearly here for a reason. And we must not let ourselves think that Moses is just haphazardly 
passing along some of the weird stories that he's heard at some point in his life. As if the biblical authors were just sitting around the campfire saying, oh, I'll tell you a crazy story I heard one time. This one was really bizarre. I'll have to write this one down. This one's too good not to write down. There, no, that's not how scripture was written. There was a purpose to it. And every section that we encounter in Genesis serves a purpose in the Toldoth, in the generational section part of the ten told us, the ten generations that make up Genesis. It serves a purpose in Genesis, and remember, this is where the German uh, you know, translation of the Bible is helpful, this is Moses' book one, and then you know, what we call Exodus is book two and so forth. This is book one of a five series book, group of books called the Pentateuch, so it serves a purpose in the larger Pentateuch that Moses is writing. So when we come to a passage like this, I encourage you to do what I like to do, which is to step back and think about what has been emphasised, rather than necessarily be drawn immediately to the detail of the questions. What is emphasised that we might not think should be emphasised? Where do you read and you scratch your head and say, well, why did they mention that? What does that have to do with anything? Why is that piece of information being singled out? As I read through the Bible, that often helps me to step back and think. There is a reason here, and what is that reason? And what we see in this passage, there are two places in particular where, where there is a curious aside. But these asides tell us something. They underscore what the purpose of the passage is about. The story is here, number one to tell us about Israel's history. And it's here, number two, to tell us about humanity's sin. So they are the only two points, and um, I hope that will mean it'll be a five-minute sermon, but you probably know better. But we're going to spend more time on the first than the second, even though the second is probably even more important. So Israel's history is the first point. The story is to tell us about Israel's history. And this corresponds with the first curiosity. Verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham and Japheth. And we've seen this lineup of three sons a number of times. Nothing unusual. But then we have this statement, Ham was the father of Canaan. Why did it, out of the blue, just say Ham is the father of Canaan? Each of the sons had sons. Canaan isn't even the firstborn of Ham. If you look at chapter 10, verse 6, this is the order of his children. In chapter 10, verse 6, it tells you the sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So Canaan is the fourthborn. So why specifically mention Canaan in Genesis 9? Well, again, we come to verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan. So clearly there is something in this narrative that means to tell us something important about Canaan, because he's the one being singled out. And remember, this is not just a part of Genesis, but a part of the Pentateuch. And Moses would have written it when these events had long since taken place. Maybe they were all oral traditions. Maybe there were some written down. But Moses is writing this, and the people would have first 
encountered it this sometime near the end of Moses' life. If you think about that, which means the people who are encountering, encountering Genesis as written history had a they had history with the Canaanites. They had history with the Canaanite people. They'd been surrounded by these people. They knew the Canaanites to be pagan, warfaring. They'd had many scraps and skirmishes with them. So at, when they come to the end of Moses' life, they're looking forward after the years of wandering to return to the land of Canaan, where they might inherit the land, drive out the Canaanites, and as we will see later in Genesis, the sins of the Amorites, that is a Canaanite people. So the sins of these people had accumulated before the Lord so that he in justice could drive them from the land. Which means that when God's people were first encountering Genesis, they, they had the mindset, we know all about the Canaanites, and this helps us to explain why there is these centuries-long hostility between Israel and Canaan. 35 times in Genesis, we have the phrase, the land of Canaan. And they would see that the Canaanites were a corrupt people. But let's back up and try to understand what happened in this bizarre story. Noah plants a vineyard. Noah makes wine from his vineyard. Wine in scripture is seen as a great gift. Jesus turned water into wine. But then Noah gets drunk. And not just drunk. There's no nice way to say it. He clearly is inebriated to the point where he's lost all sense of propriety and his own faculties. Noah, the great hero of the human race, is sprawled out, stone cold, drunk, stark naked in his tent. It isn't a pretty picture. And enter into the tent Ham. Ham did something very wrong. Verse 24 makes that clear. Noah awoke, he knew. We do not know how he knew. Presumably, Shem and Japheth told him he knew what his youngest son had done to him. What had Ham done that made Noah so angry? And Jewish and Christian interpreters have for centuries wondered exactly what this was. Some Jewish rabbis said that Ham had castrated his father. Others speculated worse. There is a simpler explanation which also reflects poorly on Ham, but the simpler explanation I think is the better one. Whatever Ham did, whatever it was, must be seen as the opposite of what Shem and Japheth do. Because what Shem and Japheth do is seen as the remedy for what Ham did not do. There's a lot of did nots in there, but I hope that made sense. That's why I'm not inclined to think that we should speculate about castration or something else, because the covering up with a garment of Noah wouldn't have been a remedy for something like that. Look how detailed verse 23 is, how Shem and Japheth covered up Noah's nakedness. And what we're meant to see absolutely is that Shem and Japheth meticulously avoided seeing their naked father. They took a garment. It's, it's incredibly detailed. They laid it on their shoulders. They walked backwards. They covered their father a second time. They turned their faces backwards. They did not see their father's nakedness. Conversely, 
I think Ham was amused and mocking to see his father in such an embarrassing predicament. And Ham, Ham lingered to see and was amused and found it really funny to see the shameful predicament that his father was in. The second aspect of the sin was parental disrespect. This isn't like helping an infirm parent go to the restroom in his old age. This is an act of love and sacrifice. Noah was in a shameful position, drunk, naked, and the right response of his son should have been to help mitigate his father's embarrassment, to literally cover the shame of his father, not to go and tell others about it in a spirit of mockery and scorn. It is telling that Ham did not go back to cover Noah. If Ham was just, if he was truly just, this was a bad situation. He asked his brothers for their help with a blanket. Ham could have done that, but he didn't. I admit this is speculation, but it seems as though Ham went and told his brothers, I've got something really funny to show you, come and see Dad. It is ridiculous and hilarious, but come and see Dad. Ham didn't go back and try and cover up this is situation. That was left to Shem and Japheth, who did what Ham should have done. But he did not do, in this act of humiliation. And then the curse comes. The curse comes, not to Ham, but to Ham's fourth son, Canaan. Now remember, when God's people read this, they wouldn't have been thinking of Canaan, the person, but they were thinking of Canaan, the family line. And we know from the rest of the Old Testament, it isn't that every person born from the line of Cain would, would be accursed. No, think of Rahab and Jericho. They were among the Canaanites that God had to drive out. And yet she had faith. She hid the spies. And she was saved. So it isn't that every single person to come from Canaan's line is accursed by God. It is a statement of fact about the nation that is to come and the peoples that are to come. Perhaps Canaan had shown something of the same character of his father, Ham. Certainly the Israelites reading Genesis for the first time would have, would have got, ah, this makes sense. Canaan, Canaanites, they would, have got, they would have made the connection. No one would have encountered this story and said, Oh, how surprising. The Canaanites are such great, are great chaps. They're wonderful people. They would have said, ah, oh, this is how it started. This is where it came from. This is why we know the Canaanites to be pagan warfarers. Now, even with this explanation, which, which, which cost me a lot of blood and sweat and tears, let us be honest, it is still a difficult passage. It is difficult. It's difficult to hear Noah. The first thing we hear Noah say. In fact, all we hear Noah say is a poem of blessing and cursing. We didn't hear from Noah before the flood. We didn't hear from Noah during the flood. When he emerged and offered sacrifice, we didn't hear from Noah then. The first time it is recorded we hear from Noah is when he wakes up from a drunken stupor and said, Cursed be my grandson. This is the first time in Scripture a man offers a curse. The others were declared by God. 
And keep in mind, this is not some kind of magical incantation. This isn't a wizard's wand and Harry Potter, boom, he has a kind of curse about him. No, it's more of a prayer, like a last will and testament. And this is common in the book of Genesis, that in the ancient world, a patriarch gathers the children, especially the sons, and pronounces what is going to happen with each one. Perhaps he curses his younger son of Ham, because Ham was his youngest son. You notice in verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. So maybe the curse was for the youngest son because Ham was the youngest son. That's a bit surprising because the order is always Shem, Ham and Japheth. But for whatever reason, that is the order that was given. But it records here that Ham was the youngest son. Well, if the order in verse 6 is the order of birth, as it normally is, Cush, Egypt, Put and Canaan, then Canaan is the youngest son. So maybe there's a, that's, there's a reason for you are my youngest son, so I will curse your youngest son. But even more than that, if you look at Genesis 9 verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons, which I think is the main reason why Noah does not curse Ham, because Noah and his three sons have been blessed by God. They'd received the Lord's blessing, and Noah would not undo what God had done. So he cursed the youngest son of his youngest son, Canaan. But we must be careful not to lose sight of the forest because of the trees. We can't be positive what happened. It seems Ham was guilty of mockery and he was guilty of dishonouring his father. And we cannot be sure why the reasons why the curse fell on Ham's son, not on Ham. Maybe Ham... Ham was older and Canaan was already known to be a bad guy. We do not know. And the original audience would not have been hung up on those questions and neither should we. They would have seen the larger forest and said, this is about who gets the blessing and who gets the curse. Which is the central theme throughout Genesis. We're tracing the line of blessing, if you remember, from Adam to Seth to Noah and now to Shem. We see the line of blessing. We see God's line of blessing. And we see the line of cursing from the serpent to Cain, to Lamech, remember? To, and now to Canaan. And we see from the line of Cain and Canaan came the Egyptians and the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. That's, that's where they came from. That's, that's the line. The people who would be at war with Israel for generations to come. And the blessing doesn't technically fall on Shem. It's the implication. But look at verse 26. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. This is not about race or ethnicity. It isn't that Shem, you are pure, and Ham, you are not. But it's a statement that the Lord of Shem, and the one who Shem has his Lord and God, just as we saw in chapter 4. If you remember... I found it very fascinating, I went, there, we, that was on recording, the line of Cain and his descendants with all their civilizational achievements, the common grace, which then pale in comparison with the Sethites, who were known because that's when men began to call on the name of the Lord. So in the first corporate way, God's people worshipped Yahweh, which was from the line of Seth. 
And the worship of God is far more important than all the cultural achievements of the line of Cain, although we give thanks for those, for his common grace. So this is about worship, not about race, which is, would have not even been a category as we understand it today, or ethnicity. These sons came from the same family. And we know from Israel's history that sometimes these people, like the Gibeonites, would receive favour when they treated fairly or were treated fairly by Israel. And Rahab would be blessed and saved. And Israel would face cursing when they behaved like the Canaanites. So this is a blending of a distinct family curse and blessing, but even more importantly, it envisions the spiritual realities thereof. I would just make a word aside because this because this has been this scripture has been massively misused in times gone by. There is no exegetical or historical grounding for seeing the curse of Ham as any justification for enslaving Africans in the past. Sadly, at different points in the history of the church, some have taken this passage to justify slavery. They've said that these must be the descendants of Ham, and they were Africans, and it said that they were destined to be servants and slaves. So that is the kind of people and character they are, so we're right to make them slaves. That is an abomination. And that interpretation has no exegetical or historical reason, just plain prejudice. And that is not what this passage is about. No, it's about the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman in conflict. It's the storyline of the Bible. The seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman and Christ as well. And, and, and there's no mention of Noah fathering other sons and daughters. Back in chapter 5, when each of these men died, it would say, and they fathered other sons and daughters. But there's no mention here, because God wanted to be crystal clear that the entire human race, everyone in this room, everyone in this room comes from Noah and his three sons. The entire human race comes from Noah and his three sons. There's no other unnamed sons and daughters about, but everyone comes from these three lines. And in a spiritual sense, they represent the three families on the earth. Those who are in a cursed relationship with God. We're talking spiritually now, but then this, this, you know, the, the family relationship points to what is spiritual. Those who are in a cursed relationship with God. Ham and Canaan. Those who are in a relationship of blessing. Shem. And then a mysterious, yet to be fully realised tribe of people of Japheth, who are not with the cursed line of Ham and Canaan, or... Shem, but they enjoy the blessings by virtue of Shem. And we'll see that at the very end. So just hold on for that one. But this is a story about Israel's history. And it, and it should cause us to worship God, to give thanks to God for his plan of salvation. This was the story of Israel's history. So the readers, and if you remember, they were, this was written in Moses' time, would have said, aha. Canaan, that makes sense. This is where Canaan came from. Secondly, though, and probably more importantly, this is a story about humanity's sin. 
In verse 20, we see Noah began, began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Now, I don't know about you, but that is another one of those out-of-the-way kind of rather strange comments that just come out. Why does it say that? You know, why does it say that Noah, became, Noah be, began to become a man of the soil? And this is an instance where knowing the original language, which I don't know very well, but I do have study tools that help me, shows us something we might not see from just reading the English. See, if you look back at Genesis 2 verse 7, at the creation of man, I'm sure you can remember those, I had a great time with my Hebrew then, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. And the Hebrew word is Adam. So Adam, as a formal name, is the same Hebrew word for the ground. So, Ha-Adam. Remember that? Ha-Adam, which means Adam from Adam. Adam, you know, Adam was made from Adam, so he was called Ha-Adam. And in chapter 9, verse 20, we see the same Hebrew word. It says that Noah began to be a man, Ish, Ha-Adam. Adam from Adam, Adam from the earth. He too is a man of the earth. He too is Ha-Adam. So this out-of-the-way comment is an indication that Noah is to be seen as another Adam. Just as man was created Ha-Adam, so Noah is Ha-Adam. He is from the ground, as Adam was. And there are wonderful parallels between Adam and Noah. They each have three named sons. And after their father's sin, Adam and Noah, conflict ensues amongst the sons. Adam's sin was one of eating. Noah's sin was one of drinking. Neither of them learned how to responsibly enjoy God's good gifts. Adam's sin took place where? In the middle of the garden. And the Hebrew word for where Adam's sin took place is, in the middle, is betok. Betok. And here it says that Noah's sin took place, and it says inside the tent, using the same word, betok. So, so their sin both took place, betok, in the middle of the garden, in the middle of the tent. And if you remember when we looked at the tent, the garden, we, we saw it as some way, uh, the temple. So there's, there's some language there which is meant to be there. In the middle of the garden, Adam ate what he should not have eaten. In the middle of the tent, Noah drank more than he should have drank. Eve saw the fruit. Ham saw his father naked. The results of both was a shameful nakedness. But notice a key difference. Adam, when he realised he had sinned, and was naked, received mercifully clothing at the hand of God. God, you know, God made clothing to cover Adam's nakedness. Sam, Ham, when he saw his father in a state of shame, did not cover his father. He did not give a garment to his father. So this is underlying the sin that Ham has committed. He was supposed to be as God was to Adam. Here is a man found naked in his sin. Here is a covering 
and had provided no covering. Instead, he went and kind of gloried in the sin. He told his brothers about it. He was laughing, mocking about it. And they had to provide the covering. The woe that is pronounced in Habakkuk 2.15 may have had Ham in mind. Habakkuk 2.15, woe to him who makes his neighbours drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Now many commentators are puzzled by the juxtaposition. I'm really glad I said that right. I'll say it again, just because I like saying it. The juxtaposition, and Noah at the beginning of the story, and Noah at the end of the story. Noah with great faith. Noah who does exactly as the Lord tells him to do. Noah, faithful Noah. Genesis 6 verse 9 says that Noah was righteous, he was blameless, he walked with God. How does that square with this? Drunk, naked Noah, embarrassing himself and his family. The juxtaposition is the point. Because think of Adam. Was he not righteous? He had no sin nature to inherit. Adam had no sin nature to inherit. He was created by God. He walked with God and Adam fell. Noah was righteous. He was saved by God. Noah was a beacon of faith amongst the wicked generation. Noah fell too. And he didn't fall during the moment of his great temptation. He didn't fall during the ark. He fell after the conflict with the world seemed to be over. I was deeply convicted of this when I read it because we are living through difficult times and sometimes... It's sometimes, I'll be honest, easier to keep going through difficult times because you're, you're fighting the good fight. This must be instructive for us. Noah built an ark by faith. Years, decades, maybe a hundred years, with the world watching on, mocking him. And he kept going. Why are you building a boat, Noah? You're bonkers. You're out of your mind. And he did as the Lord commanded him and he sailed through the storm of God's wrath and judgment. God brought him through the fire or the water. He proved to be the only man of integrity in all the earth. But Noah wasn't safe. He was safe from the flood, but he wasn't safe from his sinful heart. God wiped clean the world, but the world was still in Noah. And Satan goes after us in the moment of rest after the storm. Satan attacks in the moment of triumph. When you think, I did it. I did it. We made it. We've arrived. We passed the test. And then you get drunk and pass out naked in your tent. Because the problem is still there in the world. The problem is still there with Noah. And the problem is still there in the sinful heart. That's the lesson to be learned. Never play with sin. Don't think that you can manage sin. Just like Adam sinned, even righteous Noah has another fall from grace for the peoples of the world. The problem is still there. And yet as we've seen at the close of each of these sections,
when it seems to be dark and dismal, there is a glimmer of hope. There is gospel hope. And it seems dark and dismal today. The mute music for the last two weeks has been very, very down. But there is a glimmer of hope. There is a glimmer of hope. And it has to do with verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Good things for Japheth. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Well, who are the Japhethites? I guess that's how you say it. They're the people who settled to the north and the west of Israel, historically. They weren't their pagan, immediate neighbours. The Japhethites settled to the north and the west of Israel. To use the language that was centuries ahead, they were the Gentiles. They were the Gentiles. The line of the Shemites, to use the language to come, are the Jews. And it's, you, you, you can understand that, because if you're anti-Semitic, you're anti-Jewish. Because the Jewish people are Semitic, they are Shem-itic. That, that's where you get that language from. The Jews, Semites, are from the line of Shem. But the physical fulfilment of verse 27 never happens. There never was when the Japhethites physically lived in the tents of the Shemites. There was not an alliance with them. They didn't dwell in some kind of vassal state under a great Jewish empire. It's a spiritual promise. And I trust all but most of us in this room are a fulfilment of it. Because if you are a Gentile, as most of us are, and if you are a Christian, you are a Japhethite, Dwelling in the tent of Shem. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that absolutely beautiful? That you are a Japhethite dwelling in the tent of Shem, inheriting the blessings of Shem. Now that's not the only way to look at it. We can see by faith you can be a child of Abraham. And in that sense, from the line of Shem. But here in this promise, what is underscored is that there is hope. There is gospel optimism in the line of the Japhethites that God is not done with them yet and God is not done with you yet. So we see a fall. We see sin. We see darkness. We see despair. We see depravity. We see the smell of sin. And if, if we're honest, we're somewhat dis. You know, maybe disquieted by this. We see the stink, the stank, the stunk of the human heart. There is cursing, but there is blessing. And there is hope, but not in man. You cannot hope in Adam, not, not this Adam. You can't put your hope in Noah. You can't put your hope in Noah, righteous Noah. But you can put your hope in the promises of God. You can put your hope in Jesus Christ. There is hope in the promise of God. That the Lord of Shem has not forsaken the Shemites and he hasn't forsaken the Gentiles yet either. Perhaps that puts in a new light for what we only remembered and celebrated, what, a month ago? That in the fullness of time, God sent his son to come as a Jew, a descendant of Shem. But not only for the Shemites, 
but for all who come in faith and repentance, that they may be grafted in and may inherit the blessings that belong to the line of Shem. I'll close by reading Isaiah 9, as I think it's a wonderful, wonderful outcome of this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Let's give thanks for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if, and if you know him by faith, you are a Japhethite grafted in to the blessings of Shem. May the Lord bless the word for his glory. Amen. We're going to close our service.